If you have your Bible, turn in those to John chapter 14. Uh, good morning to all of you as well. Good morning to those tuning in online. Today we're in John chapter 14. We'll read from verses 1 through 6. And it's been a two-month hiatus. And finally we return to this book. Uh, as you turn there, if you do not know, I'm Byron Brash, I'm the pastor of Calvary Bible Church. And if you've been here for several months, then you know that we have been slowly working our way verse by verse from John chapter 1, verse 1, all the way to John chapter 14. And then we kind of put a pause right there, and then we are picking up where we left off a couple of months ago. But today, we're going to read from John chapter 14, verses 1 through 6. That is kind of the context of our verse. But today, we're going to just really take a deep dive into verse 6. Because in John chapter 14, verse 6, we see one of the most deep, one of the deepest, richest verses in all of the Gospel of John. And that's what we will unpack. One verse today. John chapter 14, verse 1 says this. It says, Do not let your heart be troubled. Jesus is speaking to the disciples here in the upper room. Do not let your heart be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. In my Father's house there are many dwelling places. If it were not so, I would have told you. For I go to prepare a place for you, and if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself, that where I am, there you may be also, and you know the way which I am going. And Thomas says, wait a second, Jesus, I don't know. Lord, we do not know where you are going. How do we know the way? And then Jesus said to them, I am the way, the truth, and the zoe, the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. Amen. Uh, but it's good to be here with you all. Thank you for being here and being part of the church today. Uh, today, you are a house. You are a house. And what I want you to do today is I want you to rip up the floor, demo the walls, and I want you to look at the spiritual foundation under your faith. How many of you have ever bought a house before? Okay, so you know that uh, anxiety, joy, slash uh, madness that buying a house, especially in the last six months, has been. But when you walk into a house the first time, what do you look for? Before I bought my first house on Hogan Drive on the south end of town, I was paranoid. I was looking for everything that could possibly be wrong with that house. I think I went in there ten times before I bought it. I called Dustin and my dad. I called inspectors, appraisers, just looking for any problem to that one house. I looked for anything and everything. And I would imagine the realtor who had to meet me there every time completely hated me. Uh, But when you buy a house, it is easy to be enthralled by secondary things and forget the most important thing. When you buy a house, you look at the paint color, just so that you know a hot pink kitchen is not favorable to you as seller. You look at the cabinets, you look at the size of the bedrooms, you look at the flooring, is it tile or carpet or hardwood, you look at the light fixtures, you look at the crown molding, drywall, you look at wood paneling. You then walk out the front door and then you, what do you do? Then you look at the roof to see the age of that roof, how old is it? You look at the siding, is it brick or vinyl? You look, in my particular case, at the backyard to see if it's big enough for you and your children. Is there a patio? Is there a park nearby? What's the school system like? There is a host of factors that go into buying a particular house. But when you buy a house, it is very easy to be enthralled by secondary things and forget about the primary thing. Because quite frankly, the roof doesn't matter, the lighting doesn't matter, the siding doesn't matter, the location, the school district doesn't matter if there's one thing that is broken. 
Back in my seminary days, I had a buddy named Andy, and Andy bought a great house in a suburb of Dallas, Texas, in Garland, Texas. It was a, school, a good school district that had plenty of space, modern build, nice stainless steel appliances, good roof. And then he signed on the dotted line, and you can see where this story is probably going. He signed on the dotted line, and then all of a sudden, his foundation broke right in the middle of his house, right in his kitchen. And slowly that crack spread and spread and spread, and suddenly, to Andy, the roof didn't matter anymore, the flooring didn't matter, the space didn't matter, all that mattered was that one particular problem, because the most important part of the house was broken. The foundation is the most important part of your house, and the foundation is the most important part of your faith. The foundation is the most important part of your faith. Christians, you, if you're a believer in Jesus Christ, how is your foundation? How is your belief system? What questions haunt you as you read the scripture? What questions do you seek to answer? Do you feel close to God or do you feel far away? Because I would imagine at some point in your life, you have felt just like the disciples in John chapter 14. That in one day, in one moment in time, your life will suddenly change. In a moment, in a blink of an eye, your life will veer off course. One day, all of your dreams and hopes and plans will change. Your family may change. And one day, your faith will come into question. The foundation in which you have built your life upon may start taking on cracks. These moments are called a crisis of belief. Every Christian that I have ever met has had a crisis of belief. That there was a moment in time that they did not expect where everything in their life changed. And believe it or not, which choice you make, whether to believe in God and to trust Him even more and to pursue Him by faith or to walk away from your faith, that decision to either believe or to run which choice you make depends on the choices you make right now. The time you spend now building your faith, the time you spend now in His Word, the time you spend with other Christians, the time you spend now growing and serving will help you withstand the storms of life. Friends, let me just speak. One day, if you have not felt already, you're going to feel just like the disciples do in John chapter 14. That there is suddenly a crack in your foundation, your belief system that you did not expect. So today what I want you to do is I want you to dig up the floor. I want you to demo the walls. I want you to look at the foundation of your faith. And I want you to see what cracks are developing underneath your feet. If you have your Bible, turn in John chapter 14. The reason we're looking at our foundation, our shaky faith potentially, is because that's what we see with a group of men in John chapter 14. Today we will kind of revisit the context of John 14, 1-6, but we're going to spend the vast majority of our time just on that one verse, that very famous verse that we see. And after a two-month hiatus from the Gospel of John, we return. And as I was you know, studying this passage this week, it felt like an old friend that I have not seen in a while, or a grandparent that I have not seen in some time, that rolls up in the driveway and all of the feelings and all the happiness and joy of seeing them kind of bubbles up to the surface. That is the way I felt with the Gospel of John. Where we pick up in John chapter 14 is that we are in the middle of the upper room discourse. The upper room discourse, for the, we can debate this a little bit later on. 
But for the sake of simplicity, the Upper Room Discourse goes from John chapter 13 all the way through John chapter 17 with the prayer that closes with Jesus' final words. And the Upper Room Discourse, where we pick up in John chapter 14, is that Jesus has less than 24 hours to live. Now allow me to ask you a question. If you knew beyond a shadow of a doubt that you would pass away at 1128 Monday morning, how would you spend the next 24 hours of your life? Tick, tick. You would probably spend it with the people that you love the most and saying the words that you value the most. And what I see here in John chapter 14 is that Jesus is no different. He sets aside time right before he is crucified, the night, the Thursday night before he dies. He sets aside time and he gives the disciples and to us today this treatise, this massive section of the Gospel of John as a way to bring them hope and comfort and to instruct them for the life that is to come beyond his death But I want to pause for just a moment, and I want you to actually trade places. I want you to imagine that you are a disciple in the upper room. Go with me to that Thursday night. You are eating a great Passover meal, remembering the independence of your people from Egypt. It is a crisp, cool night in Jerusalem in early April. And you thought that this would just be one of the normal Passover meals that you've partaken every year of your life. But little did you know that that normal night would be anything but. Imagine that you're eating that meal along a low-lying U-shaped table with other men, the 11 other men that you have lived with for three years. And you sit there with the man that you have followed, that you've spent three years dedicated to. Imagine you're a disciple and you spent three years following a man named Jesus, hoping. You gave up a family fishing business. You have paused your life to follow a man that you hoped would be the king of Israel. And then all of a sudden, in a blink of an eye, within 24 hours, their lives completely and totally change. Their foundation beneath their feet is shaken, but it gets a little bit worse. That not only is their leader, not only is the Messiah, not only is the King of Israel that they hope that they pinned all of their life upon, not only is he leaving, but your best friend named Judas is the one who's going to betray him. And your leader amongst the twelve, Peter, will deny the Savior and will deny probably even knowing you. So if you are Philip, up in the upper room, how do you feel when we pick up in John chapter 14? You're scared, you're uncertain, you're anxious, you're nervous. And Jesus knows all this. He knows that he's leaving, he knows exactly how his disciples feel, and he provides for them the best words of assurance that a Savior could provide at that moment in time. So if you have your Bible, if you have not opened them already to John chapter 14, verses 1 through 6, that's kind of the context of our passage today. And I'll begin in verse 1, and we will... Talk about verses 1 through 4 very briefly, and then we will really dive deep into verse 6. Jesus says this to his disciples, Do not let your heart be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. Why? Because in my Father's house there are many dwelling places. If it were not so, I would have told you. For I go and prepare a place for you, and if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself, that where I am, there you may be also, and you know the way which I am going. Now, I won't belabor the point here. I spoke on this passage a few months ago when we last spoke on John, so I'm not going to unpack everything in this 
section, but in verse 1 you see Jesus' plea for hope. Do not let your heart be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. That's kind of the foundation for why their heart should not be troubled. But then notice, in verses 2 through 4, you have three different promises. I have a promise in verse 2, a promise in verse 3, and a promise in verse 4. Promise number 1 is his preparation. Promise number 2 is his return. And promise number 3 is the truth that he leaves them with. And then Jesus unfolds for them the person of hope, which we see in verse 6. And there are four truths that we see to Jesus and who he truly is that we will see together. But first notice Thomas's response to verse 4. Thomas said to him, Lord, we do not know where you are going. How do we know the way? Let me pause this right there. Imagine being Jesus. He's already told them where he's going, that he's going back to the Father. But Thomas if I was Jesus, man, I would not have made it three and a half years with these people. I would have just started zapping people to ashes, okay? But Jesus here responds differently. But what is Thomas's issue? You know, Thomas is very sincere. He is. He doesn't flake out on Jesus. He is willing to die with him in John chapter 11. But he has a problem. That Thomas walks by sight and not by faith. That Thomas does not walk by faith but by sight. In John chapter 20, what happens? That Thomas won't believe that the Messiah, the Savior of the world, has risen from the dead unless he, what, sees his hands and his feet. Thomas does not walk by faith, but he walks by sight. This is the curse of Gideon's fleece. But don't we all struggle with that for just a moment? We judge Thomas, but we all struggle to walk by faith and not by sight. Can I get an amen to that one? We all struggle to really trust God. Why do I say that? How many of us have prayed something like this? Lord, I will follow you blank, but you have to show me a sign. How many of you have ever prayed something like that? Like, Lord, I'll quit my job, but you have to show me to quit my job. Lord, I'll follow you in the ministry, but Lord, you have to show me. What is that called? It's called putting God to the test. Why do we need to put God to the test? We should pray. We should read his word. We have fellowship with other believers that God doesn't really need to manifest a sign for us to understand his will. His will, all we need to follow him is found in the word of God, found in fellowship with other believers, and in the spirit of God inside of us. Thomas needs proof, like we all do at times. But in the midst of Thomas's uncertainty, Jesus reminds him of four things. Notice verse 6. Yeah. Jesus said to him, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. Now, Jesus calls himself four things. Now, if you're looking at your text with me, you're going to say, well, he probably only calls himself three things, the way, the truth, and the life. But if you've been here any period of time in the Gospel of John, you know what I'm about to talk about. Because there are those two English words that we just kind of skip over. But we failed to really see the original language and the significance that it had in the first century. If you look at your text, Jesus said to him, I am. When Jesus says, I am, the two Greek words there are ego, amy. Ego means I, and then amy means I am. So what Jesus is literally saying is, I, I am. What does he mean there? He's calling himself Yahweh. If you have your Old Testament and you ever wondered why the word Lord is in all capital letters, because behind that, the Hebrew word is Yahweh. Jesus, here in John chapter 14, verse 6, is proclaiming himself to be God. 
Not just a prophet of God, but God himself. There are modern scholars that say that Jesus never proclaimed to be God. They clearly don't know Greek. Because Jesus makes no mistake about it that he is proclaiming himself to be Yahweh. What is Yahweh? Yahweh is the most sacred name of God. There are other names of God in the Old Testament like Elohim, but this is the cream of the crop. This is the one that the Jews really latch onto. This is the name of God that goes beyond their mind and really speaks to their heart because what it tells a Jew in the first century when God is Yahweh, that he is the covenant-keeping God. That all of the promises that he has given to the nation of Israel will certainly come to pass because he is Yahweh. The word Yahweh means I am who I am. That there is no greater God than Yahweh. Jesus proclaims himself to be God. But why is that important? Many of you here today have penned your hope, your eternal hope on Jesus Christ. Many of you take comfort that your past loved ones are in heaven. Some of you here today are seeking, trying to test the Lord. You're acting probably somewhat as Thomas and Gideon's fleece, that you are trying to figure out if the Lord is really calling you to seminary. Some of you are thinking about selling all of your possessions and being on the mission field. Many of you have internal confidence that you believe in the truth. And friends, listen to me, that Jesus is not just some fallible man that has come with the truth of God, but that Jesus is God himself. That he is not only our Savior, the Passover Lamb, not only is he the King of Israel and the King of all, not only is he the creator of the world, but that he is God himself. How can we trust Jesus in life's shaky moments? First is because Jesus is God. He is Yahweh. But then notice what else he is. Notice the next little phrase. He says, I am the way. The Greek word for way is the Greek word hadas, which means road or path. But what does it mean that Jesus is the way? Let's do a little bit better. What does Jesus mean, and what does Jesus understand when he says that he is the way? But I'm going to pause. I talked about this last time when we talked about John chapter 14, verse 6. But if you notice in your English, it's there in your English text, that there is an article in front of the way, which tells you what? That it is exclusive, that Jesus is the way. In other words, what? That there's only one way to what? Within the context of verse 6 and 7 and 14, that there's only one way to the Father. That there's only one way to heaven. That only through Jesus Christ can we get to heaven and get to the Father. I'm going to kind of hop off the main trail real quick and kind of, kind of go on a side rabbit trail for just a moment because there's something kind of confusing going on in John chapter 14. Because you see that Jesus himself proclaims to be God. You see the Father is God. And then you see later on in John chapter 14, the ministry of the Holy Spirit, who also is God. So if you haven't ever heard of a treatise on the Trinity, I'm about to give it to you. So are we pantheists or are we monotheistic? We believe in God of one essence, yet three distinct persons. I'll sum it up with a creed this is the creed from the council of constantinople this is about to get all nerdy on you guys okay they write this we believe in one god 
We believe in one God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, and of all things visible and invisible, and in one Lord Jesus Christ, the only begotten Son of God, begotten from the Father, before all worlds, light of light, very God of very God, begotten, not made, being of one substance, homoousion, with the Father, and in the Holy Ghost, the Lord and giver of life, which proceeds from the Father, who with the Father and the Son together is worshipped and glorified. So Jesus, the Father, and the Spirit are one God, one essence, yet three distinct persons. If you're confused, that's okay. I am too. Because that really doesn't make sense. We understand three gods. We understand one God. But we don't really understand how God can be one yet three distinct persons. But let me just say something really quick. Doesn't that provide you comfort? Because the fact I can't truly understand the nature of God confirms to me that he is God. Because how could I expect to know as a finite, sinful human being, how can I expect as a finite person to fully understand the infinite nature of God? The fact that the Trinity, in a sense, makes no sense, provides me comfort, which tells me that we have the truth. Jesus proclaims to be the way, the way to the path, the path or the road to the Father. And the article itself tells me it is exclusive. It is exclusive that Jesus is the only path to the Father. And listen, in a postmodern world, that is wildly un- unpopular. That it is very unpopular that there is not more than one way to heaven. But the gospel is exclusive. That God, if God is light and we are darkness, it makes sense that people would disagree with the truth. And also, if God is God with only one nature, then how can there be two paths to him? Let me say that one again. If God is God with only one nature, then how can there be two paths to him? God cannot give us two paths to him. God could not have one religion say that you get to heaven by works and the other by faith because that would contradict his very nature. And a God that contradicts his nature is not God at all. I'll say that again, and I read it, and I'll just read it verbatim. If God is God with only one nature, then how can there be two paths to him? God cannot give us two paths to him. God could not have one religion say that you get to heaven by works and the other by faith because that would contradict his very nature and a God that contradicts his nature is not God at all. So how can I trust Jesus in life's shaky moments because Jesus is God, he is the road or the path or the way to heaven and he is the truth, aletheia. And again, if you notice that in verse 6, there is an article again that shows exclusivity, that he is exclusively the way to the Father. He is the truth of the Father. The truth related to what, as I just said, the truth related to God, the Father. Jesus is the truth of God. Let me say that again. Jesus is the truth of God. Why? Because he is God. How could Jesus claim to be the truth if he was not God? He, Jesus could claim to know the truth, but he himself could not claim to be the truth unless he was Yahweh himself. Pop quiz. 
I'm going to give you a test of something really quick. Now, uh, just a confession. I hated pop quizzes in high school because I was a uh, preparation freak. Actually, not in high school. I slept in high school. But in seminary, I hated pop quizzes because I was a preparation freak. If you don't do well in high school, take hope because this guy didn't either. Okay, okay. Sorry, parents in the room. Do well in school. Just saying. Okay. Uh, I'm not saying follow my example, but there's hope for the you. Okay. But pop quiz. Uh, question number one, true or false? Is there truth outside of the Bible? True or false? Is there truth outside of the Bible? The question, the answer is True. Because if you look at your text, I haven't seen 2 plus 2 equals 4. I haven't seen in the Bible E equals MC squared, which some of you could probably inform me about, or Newton's three laws. But question number two, true or false, is there truth outside of God? The answer is no. That there is truth outside of the Bible, but there is no truth outside of God. That God is the creator and author of truth And those who make scientific discoveries are merely discovering truths about God in the way he designed the universe. But is there truth that disagrees with the Bible? The answer is no, because God wrote the Bible. How could God write the Bible and then something contradict it? So then how do we reconcile the truth from science that disagrees with the truth of the Bible? That's a good question. How do we reconcile A truth from science that seems to disagree with the truth of the Bible. Both should be correct. If a truth from science disagrees with the truth of the Bible, then it means two things. It means that the scientific discovery isn't truth, or we haven't fully researched and discovered where science and God meet. Louis Pasteur, who is a very famous scientist who invented vaccines and all this kind of stuff, he said this. He says, a little science distances you from God, but a lot of science brings you nearer to God. He continues, the more I study nature, the more I stand amazed at the work of the Creator. Jesus is the path to the Father. And Jesus is the truth. He is the complete embodiment of truth of God. But Jesus is also the way, the truth, and the life. If you notice in your text, that, four, that third phrase there is life. That word life there is the Greek word zoe. Now, the word zoe it has kind of turned into a theme throughout the Gospel of John because John reuses this word life over and over and over and over and over again. But what does he mean by life? That's a, I've got, I got to be honest here. I'm trying to understand what Jesus means by having life is kind of confusing. Because it's kind of this abstract idea that we have. So what I did is I kind of went on a mission and I looked at all the different verses that describe what life is in the Gospel of John. And don't worry, I won't read every single verse. I'm just going to read a few of them. John chapter 1 verse 4. In him was life and the life was the light of men. John three fifteen through 16. Even so, the Son of Man be lifted up so that whoever believes in him will have eternal life. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. John chapter, John chapter 4, verse 14. He's speaking to the Samaritan woman who is trying to place 
inside of the void of her heart that only God is meant to fill. She is trying to place there a desire for men. That's why she's had five husbands and now she has a boyfriend. And then Jesus says that the only source of life and satisfaction that you have in this life is from God himself. So Jesus says there, Jesus answered and said to the Samaritan woman, Everyone who drinks of this water will thirst again, but whoever drinks of the water which I will give him shall never thirst. But the water that I will give him will become in him a well of water springing up to eternal life. John chapter 6 verse 51, I am the living bread that came down out of heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread also which I will give for the life of the world is my flesh John chapter 8, verse 12. I promise I'm not reading every single verse in the Gospel of John. Okay. John chapter 8, verse 12. And then Jesus spoke to them again and says, I am the light of the world. He who follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. John chapter 10, verse 10. The thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. But I have come to give life and that you may have it abundantly. Jesus is the life. But Based on the text in the Gospel of John, what does that mean? Jesus being the life. Jesus giving us life. Jesus giving us rivers of living water. Jesus being, giving us eternal life means a little bit more than just giving us energy or passion. This is the best way to illustrate it. If it makes no sense, I'm sorry. This is a light bulb, if you cannot see it from your seat. Without being connected to the power and to the life of electricity, what does it? It serves virtually no purpose other than to break and for you to step on it. But you can tell just from its design that it has a particular purpose. But without life being given to it, it really serves no actual function. This is you. And the power that powers this is the power of Jesus. The receptacle is the gospel. The plug is your faith in the gospel. And the result of life, when you plug your faith, when you believe in Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, the result of that is life, transformation. Transformation that not only gives you power or ability, but gives you eternal life. Just like the light bulb. I mean, think about this. The, when it shines light into the room, it really can't take credit for it because by itself, it is really lifeless. You can tell it serves a purpose, but without being connected to the light and the life of the electricity coming in, it really just kind of sits there. We cannot truly serve our purpose without knowing God, without being plugged into the power of the gospel, without being dependent upon the Spirit. That once power goes through this light bulb, it comes alive. Friends, listen to me. If you are a lifeless Christian, you're probably not one. <laughs> if you are a lifeless Christian, you probably aren't one. Because Jesus is the life. He came to give you life so that we would be powered by the gospel, by the Holy Spirit, and so that we would be transformed and to shine the light of God's glory and His gospel to the ends of the earth. You serve a purpose in God's plan. But the only way that you will ever know that plan is by believing and being plugged into the power of God. And by trusting Him. In 
God sent his son to restore us to God, and if we plug into the power of the Spirit by faith in Jesus Christ, then we can know and serve our purpose and have life here and eternal life there. But then notice the end of verse 6. It says this, Jesus said to him, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. If you were to look at that last phrase in the original language, you would see that it is very, very emphatic. It literally says this, Jesus is saying, it says, not even one comes at any one time to the Father if not by me. Here, Jesus actually uses a double negative, which in English would make your English teacher's heart stop. But here it gives us emphasis that Jesus is the road to the Father. He is the full embodiment of the truth of the Father. And he is the life that only the Father can give. A life that he gives to us that is full of purpose, passion, and eternal restoration. And not one person gets to the Father but through the sacrifice and love of Jesus Christ. How can I, how can you trust in Jesus Christ in life's shaky moments because he is God? He is the path to heaven and he's the complete embodiment of truth and he gives to you life. That is John chapter 14, verse 6. How are you responding to God today? This week I asked myself that exact question. You know, if you know my personality, then you know that I'm like a super big nerd and I love Greek and I just read the original language and I just like nerd out all day long. Um, It's really what I do. It's really (laughs) kind of crazy. Um, But I just, on Friday of this week, I basically had all my sermon put together except for this point and I just kind of took a step back from the table and I said, Lord, how am I responding to you? What do you have for me to do? How are you going to change my life by this passage? You know, friends, listen to me, especially in this town, it's easy to become just a robot, just knowing the truth instead of living and believing and allowing the truth to really change your life. We are not spiritual robots. Can I get an amen to that? But God has made us a mind and a heart and a soul that we are meant to know the truth, feel the truth, and to live out the truth. So I just, I just kind of stepped back and I said, Lord, what do you have for me? And he just said, Byron... Be confident. Don't be afraid of what people think because you believe the truth. That I believe as a Christian in the one true God. I, as a Christian, I have the sure path to eternal life. As a Christian, I have the complete truth in Jesus Christ. And as a Christian, I have life here and life there. You are a house. Listen to me, friends. You're our house. What I want you to do is I want you to dig up the floor, and I want you to demo the walls, and I want you to look at your spiritual life underneath the shell that you show everybody else. But, the, but what's really deep down inside of your heart is something that God only sees. It, look at that foundation. Are there cracks developing in your faith? Take a step back and say, okay, Lord, I believe in you. You are believed. You, you, you inherit eternal life by faith, but you also live by faith. Look at the foundation. What cracks are developing? Do you believe that Jesus is the true God, that you have the sure path to heaven, that you have the complete truth of Jesus Christ, and that you have life here and there? So be confident. Look at the cracks in your foundation. Let me just say something else. Um, 
each of us in here believe lies about God. That I think if you really look deep down inside of your soul, in the place, in the dark closet that no one else sees, you probably believe in something called karma. That if I do enough good works, that God will love me. Or if I do enough good works, that God will bless me. We each struggle with that. But friends, there is nothing you can do to earn God's love more. He proved it to you on the cross. This is my application for you today. What I want you to do is this. This week, I want you to just take some time alone. You can go on a walk or a hike. You can do it in your house, wherever is most comfortable to you, wherever you have a quiet moment. And I just want you to get alone with the Lord, and I want you to rip up the flooring. I want you to look at the foundation of your faith beneath it, beneath what you believe, and see if there are cracks developing in your belief system And then go to the Lord and express your confidence in him that he is the truth, that he is the path to heaven, that he's gifted to you life. But not just there, but here. A lifeless Christian is not a Christian. Before I close, uh, I would just like to share very briefly the gospel. Some of you here today probably think that you're a Christian because some preacher told you 25 years ago that if you read or repeat this small prayer that you will be saved, but a small prayer doesn't save you. It's faith in Jesus Christ and in him alone. Do not be deceived. Examine yourself. If you have never surrendered your life to him as your Lord, as your Savior, as your way to heaven, as the life that he gives you, if you have never taken a moment just to surrender to him, then what are you waiting for? I feel like so many times we push God down the road because we really don't want to obey him. We don't really want to surrender to him. We don't really want that. We want our way. But if you want your way, you're going to experience lifelessness. You're going to struggle to be just like this light bulb. That you know that you have a purpose somewhere in this world, but you cannot find your purpose in the way that God has made you outside of Him. Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you shall be saved. Pray with me. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this morning. I thank you for the friends that are here. I thank you for the friends that I see in the room. Uh, Lord, your truth is awesome. It is life. It is, it, it, it is the giver of instruction. And Lord, I pray that we would not be like J- James chapter 1, that we would prove ourselves to be only hearers of the word and not doers. Lord, that we would take time this week to set aside and just really examine our lives. To see what lies we believe about you. To see the cracks that are developing in our foundation. To see what is really bothering us. Lord, I, we can hide from one another, but we cannot hide from you. Lord, I just pray that we would go to you and that we would find the life that only you provide through your salvation, through your spirit, and Lord, that we would live accordingly. I thank you for Calvary Bible Church. I thank you for our devotion to missions, and I thank you that we set aside money and that we heard from a missionary that we support here this morning. Lord, I, but I pray that we, that would not be an excuse for us not to be missionaries ourselves. Lord, let us be light. 
Let us shine the life that you've given to us through the gospel to all those around us. Give us strength. Lift this up in Jesus' name. Amen.